Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Today, I am really, really blessed to interview Karen Gedney. Karen, how are you? I'm fine, Jen. How are you? I'm awesome. I have been really looking forward to this interview. This is one of those, it may seem deep, dark, and we're talking about stuff that lots of times people don't talk about, and I'm so thrilled in your willingness to share your story. So... One thing we need to know about you, Karen, where did you grow up? I grew up actually right next to Woodstock in New York. It's uh, in the Catskill Mountains. I grew up in the 1950s to German parents who had never completed high school. So they dragged me basically skiing and hiking. And that's about all I did for uh, my first 18 years living with them. Really? Really? What did they do for work? Well, my uh, father was fortunate enough to start in IBM in the 50s before they were concerned with degrees or GEDs or anything. He started initially with the huge vacuum tubes in computers, in computers as big as buildings. And he worked himself all the way up to be a systems technician. And in the 70s, being a transferred to Silicon Valley, to California, San Jose plant. My mother was uh, a waitress when we got a bit older. And when she was skiing in her 40s, she snapped off both tibia and fibula above the foot, boot line, both legs. <gasps> yeah. When I was about, uh, well, actually, when I was turning 18, and I still remember, I was skiing with my mother. And she started crying that uh, I wouldn't be able to go to college because uh, she couldn't earn any more money as a waitress. <laughs> wow. Very different mindset, huh? Yes, yes. Where their issue was always focused around uh, having enough money to do the things that my father wanted, which was oh. he wanted to ski and he wanted my sister and I, unfortunately, to play the accordion growing up. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's a painful memory. In yeah, that, that was for my sister and I, we, uh, <laughs> that was not our thing. So you ended up going to school and uh, you're a doctor. Tell me how you made that decision and a little bit about that. Well, I, must say I was very much affected by the books I read because we lived way out, you know, in the boonie lands and my uh, parents also had a lot of, especially my mother, a lot of fears about interacting with people. So we never really played with other children. We never went over, you know, for birthday parties or sleep. I mean, never interacted really with other people. And so books were my friends. And I was affected by books, especially books written by Frank G. Slaughter, who was a physician. 
and I romanticized about being a doctor and doing all these cool things. And he wrote about doctors throughout history, and I liked the danger and the intrigue and the just the excitement of learning new things. And I was nine years old. I didn't have any experience. And that just sounded like something that's what I wanted to do. And you did. You became a, an MD. You were a physician. Was there any specialty or anything like that? Yes, I have a, a board certification in internal medicine. That means I'm the one who figures things out and looks at the whole person figuring it out and then giving treatment to complex medical problems. Wow. So was there danger and intrigue? Like there was in prison, yes. Yeah. So, okay, so, okay, so first, because that's like, once we go there, we're sunk. We're, we're there. So right now, you have a business called DRG Consulting. Right. You're an author, speaker, and mentor. And you really, I mean, being a doctor in internal medicine, looking at the whole picture, you really want to make a difference to people. Correct. And so... Um, you also have a memoir, 30 Years Behind Bars. It's a tr Trials of a Prison Doctor. And we're going to get into the prison. Um, it just came out on Amazon last month. So 30 Years Behind Bars. And we'll have a link to that. And uh, so that's, your, that's a, a huge part of the story we're talking about today. So, but when you were, so that's what you're doing now. So now with DRG Consulting, what's the biggest thing that you do? What's the best thing you do? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think that uh, the best thing I do now is learning an entirely new career path for me. And so I'm in my 60s now, just turned 61. And... It's one thing to do all your training in medicine and then be a doctor and you do 30 odd years in your career and then you can choose different things, especially if you're a state employee like I was. You can retire and then just play golf uh, and live below the radar line <laughs> or you can do something that tests you and pushes you so you grow and you learn and you have new adventures and when i must i must say when i retired i was a little bit unclear what adventures i wanted and i ended up getting a new certification in medicine out of interest which is anti-aging and regenerative medicine and then I also felt that I had this book in me that I had to write, one of those bucket list things. And also throughout my career, I was told when I would tell people some prison stories, they would go, oh my God, Karen, you have to write a book. And I heard that an awful lot. And I had kept notes and I kept journals and I kept inmate writings. And after 30 years, I sat down and I looked at it all and I thought, that is a lot of stuff. That's a lot of shit in those files. But how to put it together and have any flow, I realized that it truly had to be a memoir, something that was true. And for the outside world to see the prison through 
my eyes, naive, someone who really didn't know anything about prisons. I mean, I never knew anybody who'd really gotten in trouble with the law or I didn't know anyone who had an addiction problem. I mean, I was about as naive as they come. Right. So I wanted them to see it through my eyes and also see it through the eyes of someone who's trained to diagnose and treat complex problems. Many times people just see it from one little niche. Could be just the little medical niche, custody niche where, okay, my job is just to keep you locked up in a cell and not be compromised. Or you have the niche where some people feel it's their piece to make an inmate's life more miserable than it is because they have a sadistic quality or a very vengeful retribution quality. So there are all these different niches in the prison. And you got your, I love that you did it as a memoir with, from the lens, your own lens. Uh, I think that's the, probably the most raw and true way to have written the book. So that came out, you got your book out. I want to go back a little bit. And you actually got into working as a physician in the prison system, which is very unique in and of itself. Um, for a program for medical school scholarship. So tell me how that happened and that you got in and how you felt about even getting into the prison. I mean, like you said, you were pretty naive. So, but t tell me a little bit about that. Well, because I uh, had parents who really didn't have excess money <laughs> at all. And when I grew up, I was always told okay, you can be what you want, but we're not going to give you a dime. At 18, you are on your own. And I realized that, at least I was bright enough to realize that there was no way I could afford that unless I did it on scholarships. Right. And that meant I had to always excel in anything I ever attempted in school. And fortunately, I like to learn and a lot of the things I learned, I actually liked. I mean, I truly liked science and math, which many people do not. I got a scholarship to college. And then after college, I applied to medical school. And even though I was, you know, up there in the top couple of percent in my college, I didn't get in because this is back in the 1970s when getting into medical school was incredibly competitive and you're competing against all these bright people who have connections, you know, parents who were doctors, parents who know people on the medical school board and know how to, let's say, present yourself in a way to get into a spot. So it didn't happen for me the first year and I was, whew, I was crushed. But I have that uh, stubbornness like uh, my <laughs> German parents and I decided, okay, now how do I get in the next go round? And I decided, well, I will get more education. So I went after uh, taking master's level classes at that time in San Jose University. And I ended up being a bacteriology nighttime supervisor for Los Gatos Laboratories. 
and I uh, ended up working in a medical office. So I hit every little bell that I could think of. And I did get into the following year, the University of Cincinnati. And I thought, now how am I going to pay for this? Because in those days, even in those days, it's like a hundred thousand dollars, you know, like 1980, it was like a hundred grand to, and my father would not co-sign a loan or anything like that. And so I started looking around for scholarships and thank God I applied to the National Health Service Corps Scholarship. And that was probably one of my happiest days in life where I got literally a telegram that's the days of the telegram. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. People like, are like code or something. What but, is that? <laughs> yeah, where I was told uh, you've got a full ride to medical school and a stipend to live on, and uh, and my parents weren't home, so I couldn't even you know tell them. But my sister and I uh, celebrated. I remember that. I have a sister one year younger than me, and we were both in San Jose, staying in their place at that time, visiting, and and we had a, that was that was wonderful for me. And the kicker is, after you complete medical school, you are allowed to complete extra training, which is the residency in internal medicine. But after you finished your specialty training, you owe the government four years of your life, wherever they want to put you. And the National Health Corps was to put you somewhere in the United States that really needed doctors. And that's what I always wanted to do as well, just serve where I would make the most impact. Now, I thought it would be indigent clinic or a Indian reservation or out in the boonies. And then they told me, no, you are going to a male medium security prison. Wow. <laughs> because uh, Nevada at that time was under lawsuits and their governor had petitioned the federal government and they needed someone to plunk in the prison and I was one. In the meantime, you met Cliff. Yes, my baby, my soulmate. <laughs> Your soulmate. I have a lovely picture of the two of you. And you two, how did you meet I know you, you knew each other a year when you got married, and that was before, um, right before, like two months before you started working in the prison. So he's, he is happening at the same time as all of that's happening. So tell right. me how he fit in. Well, that was absolutely sheer luck. And I met him in a bar, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> and I was... Uh, here I was, at that time, I was a chief resident, so I was in charge of residents. In fact, the program I was in, they couldn't find a chief, so I was a third-year resident and took on the chief position as well. And I was working so many hours, it was just ridiculous. And for months, I would be working with never a day off, you know, 100-hour type work, work weeks. I mean, it was ridiculous. But that particular weekend, that's why it's serendipity, that particular weekend, I found out that I would have Friday night off and a full Sunday. I mean, a full day off. It would be my full day off in months. And I was almost giddy from the thought of, oh, my God, having a day off, a night off. And so on the way home, uh, I decided I'm going to just stop by 
this Mexican place and have a little snack and and have a and dance because I like to dance just to celebrate my <laughs> excitement. And that's when I ran in into Clifton where it's sort of a funny story where when I walk in, there was someone from the hospital who knew me, and then we walked in together and we sat down at this big table where there were other people. And uh, Clifton, who is a very good looking black guy, is sitting next to me. In fact, he's a mutt mix. He's black, Cherokee, European. You see what I mean? So, holy he's cow. The, yes, he's got the mutt mix look. <laughs> and he was sitting next to me highly intelligent, which I always been attracted to. And also he was, when we were speaking, he was telling me about after grad school, being in Vietnam and shot through the chest in 69 and losing a lung. And in my mind, of course, I'm calculating his age. And he did not look that age, right? I mean, he just did not look like he was in his early 40s at all. I thought he was more like my age, like 30. And he, so I said to him, hey, um, how old are you? And he said, well, you don't know me well enough to ask that, but on Sunday, it's my birthday. That he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, so he was new in the area, uh, totally new in the area. He had, you know, was living in an apartment and he had, sort of had a home in, in California. And so, and he was going to move to Nevada. And I, you know, he ended up walking me to my car that night and then it came out of my mouth. Well, would you like to come to my place for dinner? And when he did, I said, and then he was like a stray dog. He never left me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what did it, huh? And uh, well, and also you'd have to imagine, you know, some women I don't know dream about marrying or getting kids, or that was zero for me. I mean, an absolute zero. It never occurred to me that I would ever marry. I it was always like be a doctor, do this, do that step, doctor, doctor, doctor. Never, never did I ever think about it. And when I interacted with Cliff that night and we just were talking over dinner, it just, I had this realization in my head, that's the guy I'm going to marry. And it had never occurred in my life, just sort of like when I was nine years old and it just occurred to me, I'm going to be a doctor. It was not, it was one of, not one of those things like, well, is that a stupid idea or where'd that come? It, I just knew. I've only known twice in my life, and both were, thankfully, home runs for me. <laughs> so you guys met. Now, you mentioned that he's mixed. So he's a black yeah. man in Nevada. Yes, right. And this is, to, to give reference, you guys met in 86, and you married in 87. Yes. So this is 1987. I, I'm just a little bit younger than you. I graduated high school in 88. So yeah. I grew up. You know, I was born. Yeah, I graduated in '75. Yeah, so 13 yeah. years. So, yeah. So, um, and I was also from New England. Now, you weren't in New England at this point. No. Then I don't know what it was like. But there was, there still is, but definitely back then there was prejudice. And when you had a mixed marriage, there was prejudice. So, what did you guys experience with that? 
Well, it, it's sort of interesting because um, I never really, uh, for me, uh, I didn't experience racism because there were no black people, right? So yeah, I mean, and, no, there weren't. I mean, there weren't any, and and also I enjoyed watching. Sidney Poitier in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and to Sir with Love. In fact, I, I must have had a crush on him. I mean, I truly did growing up just watching those movies. But when we met, and then when we moved to Carson City, Nevada, that's the state capital, maybe 40,000 people back in those days. There was no, no black people. I mean, really, none. And so I have to share with you like a funny story and and imagine uh, Clifton's outside of our home and he's uh, putting in the sprinkler system oh no <laughs> you'd have to imagine this it's just, it's really great it's, so he's putting in the sprinkler system you know what he's it is you know whatever you know sloppy clothes out there and I'm outside and I see this car pulling up right and there's this old guy, and he rolls down the window, and he motions Clifton over. He goes, hey, boy, hey, boy, ha, ha, how much you charge for doing the yard work? And so Clifton, Clifton, you know, he comes from a very different background, let's say an elite background. And so he sort of slouches forward. He sort of scuffles back. He goes, mister, I just sleep with the lady in the big house. <laughs> and, and so this is the sort of thing that I mean I don't know I had a lot of fun because one Clifton uh, is unique in that he grew up in a very um, rarefied atmosphere with highly intelligent parents uh, grew up in uh, Hyde Park in Chicago. So he interacted with people when he was a kid, like Milton Friedman, Malcolm X, Jackie Robinson. You know, his mother was a, an international pianist. His father was a real estate mogul. Now, mind you, his family, his father lost his fortune when he was 17. But all his formative years, he thought he was probably a rich white child with a good tan I don't know <laughs> and and living in a university atmosphere I mean his neighbors were the floor shimes which is you know a, 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 yeah you know a, whatever a shoe dynasty legacy right and and so he does not operate from a poor me or a victim because he he never was he was always an elite and uh and in vietnam he was a platoon leader right um you know when he was drafted uh he took the tests and whatever they do and you know he went to officer training you know schools in panama and that sort of thing so so when we would have funny to me sort of funny interactions Here's another one. We were invited to the governor's ball in Nevada. Uh, and this is Governor Miller way back, you know, in the 80s. And Clifton's uh, standing, what was it, late, late 80s. Yeah, Clifton's standing next to me. 
And, you know, this is, is a Republican thing, so there's nothing but white people there, right? Except the entertainment was a black group. So Clifton's standing next to me. I'm talking to the governor's wife, and the security people come up to Clifton and say, um, your set's starting. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Cliff, go up there and sing. Do it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Oh my God. And you know, it's really good that you have such a great, you guys have such a great sense of humor about it because prejudice can, prejudice is a very awful thing. And I'm blonde hair, blue eyed. So you right. think, oh, no big deal. Right. Except I lived in Hawaii for a couple of years back in 1990 and they hated me. I have never felt so much venom. And as I, I grew up in New England. Right. We were raised with no prejudice ever against anyone. And I think that's because it was such a melting pot. You were German, right? I, I grew up in a Portuguese neighborhood. You, the Italian mob was very real. You, you didn't have prejudice against anyone based on their culture or their skin. And so then when you go out in the real world and you feel that, that is a horrible way to feel. And so I'm glad you guys had such a great sense of humor because it wasn't common back then to be black in Nevada, but also to be a multiracial. Right. No, it, 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 so it wasn't. You know, we had times where we would walk into restaurants and it'd be like a movie. People would be bringing their spoon of soup to their mouth and would, in, you know, mid-motion, just stop and stare. <laughs> their spoon's yeah. just in front of them. But, see, I, I don't know... Uh, my father, I think, uh, my father had traveled around the world as a merchant marine for 13 years before he married, and he had a very unusual sense of humor and a way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had part of that in my personality and then weird fears on my, from my mother's side. But I almost enjoyed shocking people a little bit, you know, because <laughs> because people would come over and, you know, sometimes they'd be trying to, I don't know, say things to make a conversation about gardening or doing something in the backyard. And, and I would joke and say, well, Clifton does not like doing yard work, which is true. He doesn't. But then I would add, because he's always worried I'm going to plant some cotton back there. Right? <laughs> and and their, their eyes just look like go up like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> say, you know, but, but I would do that because I, 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 I like to, I had that streak in me, right? I love it. And I love that we talked about this first. So you, you marry in 87. You have this scholarship four-year thing. So you started working at the prison a year, like three months after you guys right. got married. So here you are, funny as hell, but naive about, certainly about the prison system, which I think the majority, and you would probably agree, the majority of us are ignorant or naive about right. the I mean, prison we system. see TV and movies and you know, you come up with your own ideas, but it's very different when you're on the inside. Right. Now, I know the incident that the that you wrote about in the book and that we're going to talk about in more detail was about a year and a half after. So just lead me through some of that, some of the, how, what it was like to work there and, and then just dive right in to, to the, the incident is Oops. outstanding. 
So, um, so I start and it was complicated because when I started the medical director who would have been above me at a state level, within a few weeks, I found out that he was dying and then before long he was dead. So I had no one to ask for any help okay. at all, which is not good when you're thrown in and you don't have like a supervisor or anyone telling you. My first day on the job, I show up and they treat me like, well, they're not happy to see me. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and then the nurse who was in my clinic also did not seem to like me there. And she was like, well, so-and-so will just show you around. And, you know, I shown around by this guy in blue scrubs like most of the day. And no one tells me that he's an inmate. <laughs> you see what I mean? Wow. You see, I mean, that, that sort of thing where you, you try to get in your brain, like, how, how can you do that? But even worse, like, he, he was the nicest person to me. You see what I mean? Yep. Right? So that was another weird thing. And then, at, and then when I you know, come back into this clinic area because he's been showing me around. Some other nurse says, you know what he is, he's a chomo. And I didn't even know what that meant, right? And, uh, and then he tells me he's a child molester. You see, and it was so unprofessional. One, to not let me know that I was walking around with an inmate. Two, that the inmate never really volunteered it either, you know what I mean? And then three, for someone who's technically supposed to be professional, embarrassing that person who actually works in the clinic. I mean, he was a worker. And in the early days, that was another thing that floored me, in the early days, the majority of the people who worked in the clinic, the medical clinic, were inmates. I had an x-ray tech who was an inmate. My guy who helped with emergencies and guys that went down on the yard was an inmate. Uh, the guys who would be the clerks and sign in people and take blood pressures and pulses rates were inmates. You see what I mean? Yeah. I was surrounded by all these individuals in the clinic who were working who were actually inmates. And actually, I liked them the most. You know, actually, because we had some very unhappy, uh, angry, disgruntled uh, staff. I mean, so, I mean, uh, you know, there were some nurses that, to me, I think they gravitated toward the prison because they liked power and they were not compassionate people, you know, so in their minds, the prison fit for them. So not a great start setting, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely not a great start. So, so jump right in, because this is yeah. a, quite a story. Yeah, so what happened was um, a year and a half, I start taking care of all sorts of medical problems. And there was one particular inmate who was a Marine Vietnam vet 
who was highly intelligent, who had some minor medical problems, but more than anything, it was obvious he had psychological issues, a lot of depression and a lot of on the edge of suicide. And in those days, we really didn't have like psychologists and psychiatrists. And we had one guy that uh, this inmate would not associate with at all because he, one, the psychologist was a draft dodger who only said things like, well, what do you think? Well, hey, what do you think? But really did not care. So the inmate had nothing to do with him. And I'm faced as a naive person. Well, he's got medical problems. He has psych problems. I'm a doctor. I have to see if I can help him and heal him. That guy developed literally like a fatal attraction toward me. And I knew he was getting attached. And I was in this position of, uh-oh, what do I do? Do I try to if I tell custody, custody, because I saw how custody overreacted, they, they tended to overreact with things like that to make the person even more miserable. Like, oh my goodness, the doctor thinks you like her, so we're going to take everything away you have, put you in a higher security place, beat you up, you know, that sort of mentality. So I thought, oh, I, I have to figure out how to do this on my own. That was a bad mistake because I didn't trust anybody on the other side, because I had seen a little bit too many things by then. And then uh, this guy on Friday, October the 13th in 1989, uh, basically took me hostage. He uh, came into the clinic that day. He brought in a lot of stuff with him, um, a buck knife, not a make-believe knife, but a real buck knife. He had torn up t-shirts, made ropes out of it. And no one actually searched or, you know, looked at him when he came in. He sat down and he said, uh, Dr. Getty, you know, day it is today. And I said, Friday, October the 13th, and little fur, you know, goes up on your neck. And he said, and that's the day you're going to watch me die. And when I tried to get up to get out of my room, he basically took me down by force. And because he was a, you know, a Marine trained killer person, he by reflex took my neck and rotated it literally around my head, you know, to snap my neck. And fortunately, I was athletic enough that I went with the force, ended up on the other side of my desk upside down. He shoves the heavy desk into me. And then it gets complicated because He's yelling, and I hear, because this clinic is small, it's right next to where the lieutenants and the associate warden's offices are on another, uh, past two, like, steel gates, but it's close. And I hear, and I'm, like, dazed upside down, because I think I broke my wrist landing on it wrong, and I hear the associate warden at that time yelling down the hallway, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And the inmate says, I've got her hostage. And that guy goes, what do you want? And the inmate says, that bucket of water, where they had those plastic jugs of water, plastic jugs of water on the counters where the nurses would dispense little medicines. And that assistant warden basically, because when I'm trying to come up front of my desk to see what, he hands the guy the plastic jug of water. 
Now, he could have done something at that point in time, possibly, because he would have had the goon squad behind him. But he didn't do anything. The guy, the inmate takes the jug of water and then he closes the door and locks it from the inside. Now, this is how, how prepared the prison is. The prison doesn't even know if they have a key to even get into that door. <laughs> See, that's oh my God. I, I'm not kidding. That's how bad that place was. <laughs> you know, and, um, and now I'm hostage with this inmate who, um, one, has a fatal attraction to me, but also has a death wish. All right, has a death wish. Then it even gets more bizarre because in the hostage, you know, back and forth business on the phone, turns out that the sheriff in Carson City was this inmate's best friend. What? Yes, they had grown up together as kids. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up in a movie. And they end up calling the sheriff in to be part of the negotiation. And, uh, you know, the inmate basically tells his old high school friend, hey, I'm not going to tell you anymore. I'm not, you know, not going to interact with you. And, uh, and it was about four hours before he actually ends up raping me. And that, that was one of those things where, the, you know, the tension in the room was just building up unbelievably. And, uh, and you know, he made it very clear it was going to happen, and it was going to happen whether I was dead or alive, you know. And uh, I decided I'd rather be alive than dead. And I must say, I ended up um, literally, my brain just switched off mm -hmm. because I, I have a thing about wanting to be in control or at least the illusion of control. And I just, I knew that he would want to get off on me emotionally having a reaction, whatever reaction that was. And so I shut off all of that, like a switch, and I showed zero, absolutely zero. And um, after he raped me, then the energy in the room was just like a balloon that just had all the air went out, you know. And then he had brought with him marijuana. He started smoking marijuana and eating junior mints. <laughs> he had brought junior mints with him and Maalocs. And unfortunately, he was a, a nicotine addict, so he had a carton of Camel cigarettes too, you know. Oh, God. So, but when that tension broke, um, that that was much better for me than sitting on the, because I, sitting on that edge was like, I can take him. No, I can't. Because up until that point, I was playing in my mind, can I take him? You know, and I knew that if I took him, I would have to totally 100% incapacitate him. Yes. 
Uh, and he had a buck knife and was a trained killer in Vietnam. And then my brain was like, what are you, crazy? He has nothing to lose. And even if he didn't want to kill you, he's going to kill you on instinct, right? In fact, he was in prison because uh, he had done armed robbery and a cop, you know, stopped him. And basically, he literally, um, what should I say? He ended up disarming a policeman and killing him. See what I mean? I mean, he was a trained killer. And he had he had a death wish, like you said. And I mean, he wanted to die that day. His, right, right. His, so he didn't his, want, there was no bargaining. You no, know. you would have to kill him or knock him right. unconscious. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. And, um, and so that, and, and then it was really so stupidly bizarre. He had, when he came in to see me, he had put like a little bullseye on the door and he was telling them in the interrogation, literally uh, at the stroke of midnight, because he wanted to be killed on the like 14th year anniversary that he had killed the police officer. So he was very intelligent. So then it became almost like weirdly like a Hannibal Lecter tale <laughs> because he wanted to be killed on the 14th anniversary that would have been on midnight the 14th of october he had planned it so there were 14 visits that was my 14th visit you understand everything was planned way before holy crap there are 14 letters in my full name i mean then i started seeing 14s everywhere afterwards and i only found out about this weird thing with the 14 business really after when um one of the inmates uh, thought he was dying and, and basically told me that he knew Meller was going to do this years ago, that he wanted to die on the 14th anniversary. And, um, you know, he felt like guilty that he should have seen it coming, you know, that sort of stuff. So it was very, it was very bizarre, very bizarre. So he's smoking weed and cigarettes and eating yes. some green and mints after raping you. Yeah. That's normal. Yeah, that's right. And you're like, how, like five hours in at this point? Yeah, now I'm five hours in. And, uh, and I still got another six hours to go before they finally had a SWAT team. And, and, that's a, and during that period of time, um, you know, there, there's no movement on the prison yard. There's, uh, I don't hear anybody. I swear, I thought that everybody went home and just left me to die. I mean, that's what I thought, you know. And, um, and then my poor husband, imagine Clifton, <laughs> they call him because he was working at a, at a little company at that time. Uh, they called him and said, um, come to uh, the prison administration, your wife's been taken hostage. Holy shit. Right, and they, so he had to come and he had to sit there for 10, 11 hours waiting. Knowing so, you were hostage. Knowing I was hostage, but also he knew, see, before it happened, I had actually talked with Clifton about this guy because, you know, they're both Vietnam vets, right? And I had told him, and, and actually, my husband had warned me. He said, Karen, he's dangerous. He's a bush vet. 
And I said, well, what does that mean? And he goes, he's never come back from the war. Be careful. I wasn't careful enough. So, and uh, so he's in administration and then the uh, people in power would intermittently come in and tell Clifton um, what was going on, okay? And then they would also ask him, well, what if we do this? What do you think she'll do? Like initially they thought, could they like bring in coffee that was drugged or, you know, I mean, he didn't take it. He wouldn't take anything. And there was no way to give that sort of stuff anyway, but they were figuring different scenarios. And they even told Cliff, well, we're thinking about using a concussion grenade and it could make her deaf. And I'm thinking, <laughs> all right, forget it. But, you know, so they were running these different scenarios. Thankfully, they didn't make me deaf. They gave me ringing in my ears for the rest of my life, but didn't make me deaf. And you don't know any of this is going on. No, you're no, right. And, and so, right. And, you know, in my mind, uh, this is weird, but that night, I still remember this, that night we were supposed to have um, dinner with this couple, right, in town. My first thought was, oh, no. Someone should let this couple know I can't go to dinner. <laughs> like, Isn't it bizarre the things you mind. think? Yeah, it's so bizarre. Yeah, but you're kind of, I think that's a survival instinct for sure. Yeah. You yeah, know. So that's, yeah, that's weird. But imagine this. So Clifton's in that prison administration thing. And I only found this out later, much later, but because Clifton would say, well, one of the inmates, because see, when everything's locked down, if you're a porter, like one of those cleaning porter guys inmate in the administration building, you can't go anywhere either. So you're there. And so one of those guys told Cliff, look, if they don't get him, we will. Which means like the inmates had already made the decision that if the SWAT team, you know, or like the prison wouldn't handle it, and somehow the, the inmate lived, that they already had a contract, they were gonna kill him. Right. Because he had broke the code for yes. the, the old convicts. And, um, and then on top of it, this is so, oh, it's like crazy. The, there's the main prison yard, there's the minimum security camp next to the yard. Yep. At the minimum security <laughs> camp, there is a Vietnamese guy who was a Viet Cong guy, who was a tunnel rat guy, okay? Now, imagine this. So this guy, he hears what's, he hears, you know, the, what's going on, but he can escape for, with anything. He's the type of guy who can climb two fence lines, go through concertine wire. Nobody knows that he's done it and come back. So what he would do is he would escape. I mean, he, during this situation, he went over the concertine wire, checking everything out. Then he would run, which is at least a mile or so. He would run and, and to the, you know, and let the other inmate know in the administration office what was going on. I oh, my God. You know, right. Yeah. And I mean, it's just wild to think that, you know, this, this Vietnamese guy could have, 
you know, escape prison anytime he wanted, but that wasn't his thing. It was just that, I mean, he didn't want, he had a short sentence. He wasn't going to go anywhere, but he, there was no way you're going to keep that type of person, you know, in a minimum security camp. So he actually went over the fence line to let people know what was going on. <laughs> I only found out about that many years later. Now, did they realize, did anybody realize that you had been raped? And did they tell Clifton? Well, well, see, the thing is, they had no way of knowing, right? Okay. So they had no way of knowing. Now, when they got me out with uh, the concussion grades, the assault teams, uh, the, and, and basically the SWAT team ended up sort of blowing up the room sort of thing. And when they came in, they blew away the inmate. Okay. Okay. Uh, now he was supposedly coming up at them with, you know, a knife, right? So they just went pop, 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 pop. And, and then there's another guy in a flak jacket sort of dragging me over the body. And then when I'm being dragged down the hall, I hear a single shot. Now I think they gave him a headshot. The, uh, SWAT team people say, no, 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 he was just nervous when he reholstered. Yeah, well, okay, whatever. But, but when I'm dragged out, um, they had already called in EMTs, you know, like for ambulance, because they didn't know what to expect. And I didn't want anybody to touch me. You know what I mean? Zero. And, you know, here I am on top of it, a doctor, and I'm basically telling medical people, get away from me. You know, I'm okay. Get away from me. Just boom, get away from me. Um, and you know, they weren't going to argue with a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and also someone who was walking and talking and, and, you know, looks intact. Right. And so, and Clifton was there and he hugged me, thank God. But then we had to go over to the warden's office because they, I had a female warden, thankfully, at that time. She's, she was a good person. And she said, Karen, you know, we, we have, this is procedure, we have to debrief you. Like they wanted to know whatever. I wasn't ready for it at all. No. I was like in shock, basically, for all sorts of, especially that grenade thing. I think my brain was still bouncing around in my head. And so, I go to the warden's area and she said, I'll just have my secretary here and do you want your husband with you? Well, I wasn't gonna let him go then, you know. So here's the four of us in a room and she had to do her job, but she was also compassionate. She knew I was rattled. So the questions she would ask, I was just doing like, yes or no answers you know nobody asked me if i had been raped or you know what i mean it was more like security questions um, generic sort of stuff i don't even remember what i said all that i know is i didn't go there and then i then after that uh clifton drove me home because i didn't want to drive in my car and then there's the media you know out there with all those those media type of people and I did not want to in any way interact with media because I had seen circumstances where the media would get a little piece and 
it had nothing to do with really what happened. So I, I, and I didn't want any, so I didn't interact with the media at all. I had been contacted by the media where they wanted my story, but I never told them anything because I wasn't ready and that just wasn't it. So I get home and uh, then I'm so wired, I can't sleep at all. And that's when I did what my German mother taught me. I scrubbed and cleaned all the rooms in my house. <laughs> and I went back to work on Monday. Holy crap. And this, this was like a 10-hour hostage. Yes, 10 hours. You were yeah. in there for 10 hours, assaulted, raped. The SWAT team sledgehammers through the wall, right. uses the concussion gr grenade, kills the inmate in front of you, drags you over them. So yeah. maybe you need a little time to. <laughs> yeah, right. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so, but I, but I, you but go back I to just, Monday, like it's no big yeah, deal. I just go back to work. Yeah. And they, they weren't really, I don't, first of all, they never checked on me, you know. Uh, and, and of course, this is the days before, you know, internet stuff, but I mean, no one had, you know, done a phone call or anything but i i just show up to work and i don't think they knew exactly what to say so they didn't really say anything and they hadn't cleaned up my room really i mean in that there was a big hole still in the wall <laughs> you know because that takes construction people to heal the wall up and the, and it had been cleaned but when you stepped on the tiles there was still blood that gushed up you know from the tiles which was not good for me and there were still bullet hole thingies in the, the screen and the wall, which is also not good for me. So, No, a lot of trauma triggers. I mean, right. a, a yeah. million and one trauma triggers. There's right. right. So in, in one of the things I did was I immediately made the decision that, um, and thankfully I had a female warden, but I, I called up the office and said, uh, you got to fix the hole in that that wall and so thankfully they jumped on that you know the next day or two because uh, anything to fix in a prison could take forever and it's like mid-october and nevada's cold you know up in northern nevada right but i actually got permission to get a, a carpet and i put down a carpet on the tiles you know what i mean so i didn't have to see them and then I changed the position of the desk because I realized the way my desk was positioned, I had to get around it to get out the door. And I wanted to make sure in the future I was closer to the door uh, than technically the inmate was if I was seeing them. You see what I mean? So yep. I changed the position of uh, it into a more secure position. And in those days, you know, yeah, I, my office also doubled as the exam room. So yep. it, you know, it was just sort of weird. And no one ever really asked you about rape. And people have to understand, this is back in 89. And it's not like people had no sensitivity back then, but it was a different atmosphere. There was no internet. Um, much different atmosphere towards, still towards women, not like the 70s, but um, rape, you kind of, I mean, I know I, I'm thinking about this timeline and that was stuff you didn't talk about really. Right. Yeah. In my mind, you, you didn't, you dealt with it. 
And you, it took you several weeks to even tell Clifton. Yes. Mm -hmm. What actually, now a lot of that is like, you just went through a very traumatic thing. Maybe you just need a minute. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, 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 I was in shock and, and I realized that I had a problem where I think it was like maybe my second week back to work and I always worked out in the gym and I continued to like in exercise is one of my uh, things that helps me be mentally okay. <laughs> so I still went to the gym every morning and I think a week or so afterwards, some woman in the gym who's a regular, though I didn't really know her well, but she's a regular. She came up to me and she said, Oh, I heard what happened to you. And I'm so glad nothing happened to you whatsoever. <laughs> and then, and then because, you know, in the paper, they didn't know they were like, well, doc, this happens to the doctor and she's back at work. And the, in the prison was like, well, she was a little stunned, but nothing happened to her. You see what I mean? Cause I didn't, I didn't tell him. Remember? Yeah. Right. I didn't tell him. Yeah. I'm glad that you had a 10 hour hostage situation and watched a guy get blown to bits yeah, I know, and, and lived through a concussion grenade, but like you're, that's, that's it. That's all that you I know. Right. And so when she said that I snapped and I said, no, nothing happened to me except I was held hostage, assaulted, raped, concussion grenade, saw the guy blown away. But I just went like I like like vomited on this poor woman. And her the look on her face was like, oh my God. She didn't know what to say either. But she moved away from me, you know, like she just moved away and went on a different gym equipment. You you don't want to be contagious, you know. Right. <laughs> and then and then I realized, wow. I, you know, I, all right, I've got a problem here. And, uh, and I still stuffed, I tried still trying to stuff it down. And then I started getting colds and sniffles, which yeah. I just never really got. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, medically in my brain, I know, oh man, my immune system is having issues. And, uh, and then at that time we had we actually had a medical director at that time. This is a year and a half after I started. And I asked him, uh, you know, for a little, uh, what should I say? I asked him for advice. And he said, well, why don't you talk to the psychiatrist here? Now, that was the worst advice possible because that guy was as crazy as a looney tune. I mean, truly, that guy was a crazy guy. And uh, so that was like, uh-oh, there's no way I'm going to talk to someone who I know is basically crazy. And, uh, and then someone told me, oh, there's a female psychiatrist in town who's a normal person. And I thought, okay, Karen, get over yourself. Why don't you just talk to her once? And I talked to her. And in the first meeting, I still remember where um, she pointed out that um, I had not even allowed myself to become angry. And, um, and that was something like almost a realization for me because I know growing up in my family, 
you weren't really allowed to show anger. Actually, you weren't really allowed to show too much emotions at all. You sort of just didn't really show emotions unless it was happy. Happy was okay, but, but, not, but not anger and not depression or none of the negative emotions were really acceptable. And that was uh, a realization for me that uh, I experienced anger because it was basically a threat. And also it was an injustice and an insult, sort of all the triggers for uh, anger. And when I realized that, I, I realized that I had to work through that. And, and to me, I did, I did that. And one of, one of the ways, well, one of the ways it ultimately worked out for me was, so I had that realization with a psychiatrist, and then I went on vacation by myself, skiing in Vail, Colorado, where I had a wonderful time. And I thought, okay, Karen, I'm back, I'm back, you know, <laughs> I come back to my normal self. Not really, but a year later, I was asked, well, I was, there was a in-service training for custody officers, and I, at that time, this is the eight, late 80s, I'm giving these talks on HIV to custody because they had all these concerns about HIV and AIDS in those days. And uh, one of the young female officers, mind you, these are new officers, she raises her hand and says, oh, Dr. Gegney, we heard you were hostage. Can you tell us about that? Now, mind you, up on that point of time, no one in the prison ever, ever, ever had asked um, what had happened to me or what I felt or anything, zero. And when that was about a year later, so now I've got my marbles and I have anger now. <laughs> and, and then I basically told them. And that poor class was probably never the same. Yeah, because there were women crying. And then there were all, there's always a couple of guys who basically said that uh, Dr. Gedney, you know, is a problem. You should get rid of her, you know, that sort of too. But, um, Right, because you don't want to make waves in the prison system. Right, 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 yeah. And now, well, yeah, but fortunately, the instructor for the class, CJ, had been a, Viet a Korean and a Vietnam vet. And he realized that, one, it was the best thing for me. But, two, he also realized it was the best thing for custody officers to hear uh, because he understood that, like in war times, the worst thing is to make believe it never happened and just stuff it down, right? That sort of right. thing. So he fortunately uh, was one of the good guys. Now, I'm going to fast forward because your whole platform and what you're doing now is to inspire people and help them be their best selves. And I guess... It's shocking for me. You stayed in, I mean, your book's called 30 Years Behind Bars. You stayed as a prison doctor for 30 years and Clifton ended up being a teacher and volunteer because he was such a good man, a professional male role model, very smart. Right. Like you said, he had been a platoon leader. So he probably understood some of what the inmates were going through. You guys stayed in the prison system. You were there as a doctor for 30 years. Yeah. 
even though a year and a half in, what made you, what gave you the ability to stay? The biggest thing for me was after the hostage incident, it was the compassion from the inmates in what they said, the compassion uh, in their notes to me, um, and also to experience compassion from a group where most people would least expect it from. And then in contrast, where you tend to expect something from your people that you work with who are supposedly the pillars of society or the protectors of society, and they have none, or I felt none. And, and when you experience that, it really changed the way I looked at the world, I must say. <laughs> but also it showed me um, the value, to me, it showed me the value and potential in that population that was being thrown away. And, right. And, and also that in that population, there's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. There, there are people who are uh, just in the wrong place, the wrong time, all the way to people who are very dangerous and you don't really want them in society, but they're not all the same. That's the thing. They're not all the same. And, uh, and of course, as a physician, you want to figure things out and you want to help heal people and make them whole. And you hate seeing human potential wasted. And I always wanted to make an impact. And to me, to make an impact in a place where most people weren't interested in making an impact. So I knew that my greatest, what should I say? My greatest gift would be in the darkest place. And I don't want to go darker than a prison. Like I don't want to go to... I don't know, like some dark prison in the Middle Eastern country or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, I could definitely be worse, but this is pretty up there. And right. I, wow. So and so I wanted to make an impact in a place where I felt I was needed. And I know that when we were writing to each other before, you said it's a system that wants to punish and shame. And like you said, there are people that should be there that are dangerous that you don't want to get out that you don't want to interact with, but you're seeing the whole prison system is the job or their directive is to punish and shame. There's no healing or making whole or rehabilitating because 90% of those people are going to come back out Right. while they're there. You wanted to make some difference in their healing process, so when they got out, they could maybe be successful. Which wouldn't we want that? Right, right. And I had hope for them. See, the thing is, it's the typical sort of thing where I was energized when, let's say, an inmate left and did well. I loved those stories. I mean, I loved the underdog stories, and I was surrounded by people who were very attached to tell stories about how an inmate left and screwed up and came back. That energized them because it's that confirmation bias where you look for the things that confirm your underlying value system, right? And, uh, and I, I value the underdog winning. 
and there's some people who value uh, their mindset that a, a leopard does not change their spots. And I think to think that humans can't change is very limiting. And like you said, there, there are times that people are definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time, or it's very situational. Holy cow, Karen. <laughs> so you stayed 30 years. Clifton was supportive. You did end up telling him about the incident a couple weeks yeah. ago. What was that like? When, I mean, not a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks yeah. after it happened. I'm sorry. Right, yeah. What was that conversation like? Because I think it, it seems to me from our emails, that was a more limited conversation. Yeah, well, the thing is, uh, I remember, you know, um, it took me maybe two weeks or so to tell him. And I remember we were lying in bed and uh, I sort of nudged toward that topic. And um, I knew that um, he had already, what should I say? In his mind, he had already known it had happened. Yeah. And uh, he was just waiting for me to tell him. That was the thing. And, um, and he basically just held me and uh, told me that it would get, um, that, you know, he cared for me, right? So, and the thing is that, um, and the, I knew he wasn't the type of guy to, I don't know, like somehow blame me and uh, then look at me as less. You see what I mean? That sort of thing. So, so he, he just kind of let you process it, gave you the space and let you right, talk. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful thing. So 30 years afterwards, you retire from that and you finally write the book. And I, I want to, that just came out a month ago. So this is all very new and I've written a book. So I know when you write a book and you have to talk to people about the past or um, about the role they played, it's a very powerful for the author, for you reaching out. And you and Clifton had another conversation when you were writing the book and right. because you wanted to know what he remembered and how it affected him. And what was that like 30 years later? Almost. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting to find out that you still learn things 30 years later about an incident because you choose to uh, revisit it. And um, the profound thing for me was when I asked him, well, remembering it, how did it really affect you? And he said, Karen, that's the first time you've really asked me that. And that just like floored me because uh, I realized, you know, was I that blind or that sort of stuck in my own little head or did I misremember? But, and he made the comment he said, you know, when I looked at Vietnam vets and PTSD, 
and he said, and I had my own PTSD, and it took me a while to process my stuff. And he said, I realized that people aren't really um, getting over it until they start asking how their behavior affects other people. How interesting. Which is a very, I mean, it was like a very interesting insight for me as a doctor because I realized how true that statement really is. Because you've healed yourself enough to get outside of your little pain ball to then ask other people, you know, how it affected them. And it, it's sort of like one of those things where I, I realized it, but there's a difference between realizing it and then asking them in a way where they can share their stuff. Because I think initially you got so much of your own stuff, you don't want to hear other people's stuff. <laughs> and then on top of it, I was still a doctor in a prison where I have to process all my patients' pain every day, you know all sorts of stuff like they're dying or they've got some miserable illness or their kids died in the outside world and their guilt. So I was constantly getting this stuff all the time. So now what's, I mean, holy cow, first of all, anyone can get your book on Amazon 30 years behind bars, which of course I want to run and go get. We, we, we went through this uh, interview planning process pretty quickly. So I wouldn't have even had time to get it. Right. Uh, let alone read it, but 30 years behind bars is there. And now what's your plan now? Cause now you've retired and you said you wanted to figure out what you're doing with your life. Right. So, <laughs> yes, yes, I am. <laughs> cause, Cause you haven't lived enough already. You know, <laughs> your business is DRG consulting. So people, what's the easiest way for people to find you and what can you do for people when they find you? I mean, like me, they can just get you on the podcast and question the hell out of you. But right. what about outside of that? Well, uh, I have a website called discoverdrg.com. Okay. And that, through that website, uh, they can take a look at, uh, you know, the book, my blogs, how to contact me, and uh, also for potential speaking engagements, things like that. I think that's the best way to contact me. And then, of course, um, with my book, if they like it, uh, I really want them to leave a review and share it with other people because I'm operating at the grassroots level. I did not go and get publicists and agents and things like that. Uh, one, I didn't know. <laughs> but two, yeah, I'm still stuck a bit in that mindset of doing things on my own. Yeah, me too. My book's been out a year and a half and people are like, oh, you're a published author. It must be so great. And I don't know what we think. I never thought about what it would be like to be a published author. I didn't think all of a sudden I'd have fame and I'd be signing autographs somewhere, <laughs> but right. it's like, it's nothing like that. I'm like, I yeah. make maybe $2 off of every book I sell. On right, right. I know. Like, <laughs> JK Rawlings and I are not in the <laughs> same category. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's kind of, it's great to do it on your own, but yeah, you're, you're grassroots for a long time when you do that. And I think you, I mean, for me, and I am guessing for you, you think if, if people read this and it helps somebody, 
if somebody learns something, if it makes their life a little bit better, then it was a job well done. Right. And, and also, I also wrote the book because I really wanted to inspire people um, to also take a look at this mass incarceration thing and to inspire them to take their passion, whatever it may be, and think about it in a way, how could they use to help reduce mass incarceration? For example, there's so many kids that come from really dysfunctional environments. And if people have a passion for dance or art or uh, sports or whatever it is, to think of themselves as if they help a kid, maybe that's one less person that ends up behind bars. Or if they're a lot of the baby boomers who are, you know, starting to shift careers or think about what am I going to do in retirement, I really think they need something that is just really purpose-driven to give back. And there's all these interesting prison entrepreneurial programs that are popping up. Uh, there's the people that are the dog lovers and the horse lovers who have these puppies on parole programs in prison or Nevada has a Mustang program but you can take your love of dogs and then be helping with the dog program in the prison. Some people are trainers, some people buy the dogs, some people support the program. But to me, instead of whining about problems in our country, I wanna inspire people to take a little action, you know, but do it in a way that they enjoy. You know, there's some people who enjoy knitting. They had, they had the inmates crocheting things in their prison, you know, making cat baskets and stuff. I mean, there are different things that can be done. I love that. That's a great space to end on that you can take whatever you're interested in and still give back. And give back, right. And, and to, me, to me, it makes really a lot of sense to give back to someone that if you change their direction of life, you can make such a ripple effect because it's not only does that person not go to prison, but their behavior doesn't hurt others. So it keeps society safer and then they become productive. So instead of paying all the money in prisons, like um, California example in the last 20 years has built 22 prisons in two universities. As, you see, you see the difference. Yeah. And in in our type of country, you you shouldn't have five percent of the population in the world and twenty five percent of the incarcerated in the world. That is not a statistic that this country should be proud of, and it should be so glaring. People should ask, "Wait a second, if this is the land of the free." <laughs> you know, land of liberty and freedom and happiness. How did we end up like that? Yeah. And there are a lot of people on both sides of the uh, polarized uh, political system who actually think, wait a second, we, we need to think about this differently. And we do. And, but, and then they have to, besides thinking, they have to do some act, they have to do something, act. 
And thank you for inspiring people to do that. Thank you for sharing your story and your business and your book. And holy cow, it was just a pleasure interviewing you and uh, for your willingness to be open. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.